Just a note, this episode contains descriptions of hospitals and procedures that may be uncomfortable for some audiences. Moans and yells came from the open-air abdominal ward in Bataan's Field Hospital No. 1. They echoed through the trees and jungle that attempted to hide the hospital from Japanese aircraft. The screaming came from a bed hidden behind sheets that were arranged to give the patient privacy. Around the ward, the other patients, American and Filipino servicemen who had been wounded in action, waited anxiously. Some paced. Those unable to walk smoked cigarettes, some of the few precious remaining rations on the peninsula. Behind the privacy of sheets, army-filled nurses sterilized instruments and made preparations. Among them was Lieutenant Eunice Hatchett, or Hatch as her fellow nurses called her. She was a pretty 30-year-old with soft dark curls hanging to her shoulders and a large infectious smile that crinkled her eyes. Finally, the screams turned into uncontrollable cries. She's here, Hatch exclaimed, loud enough for the entire ward to hear. Oh, she's beautiful with gorgeous blue eyes. All around the ward, the wounded men sighed with relief, as if they'd each been the anxious, expectant father. The Paton Field Hospital No. 1 had just seen its first and only baby delivery. Her parents named her Batana. The baby girl's father was a serviceman whose pregnant wife had followed him to Baton. Then, when he injured his foot, she followed him to the field hospital just around the time of her delivery. So, when the contractions started, Nurse Hatchett and the other nurses set up a makeshift delivery room in the hospital's abdominal ward, the closest thing a battlefield hospital had to a maternity ward. Little Batana became the most popular person at the hospital. The nurses kept her in the surgery, thankfully an enclosed building, and paraded her down to the abdominal ward. The doctors and nurses all vied for a chance to carry her. Hatch would show the baby girl off to the patients, some running over to see her, others sitting up in their beds to catch a glimpse. Those unable to do either demanded for her to be brought to their bedsides. The hardened soldiers stared at her with wistful eyes and made soft cooing sounds. Some of the nurses unraveled their twine purses to make sweaters and booties for the precious baby. One Filipino worker weaved a bassinet out of rattan. Even the island fortress of Corregidor, two miles offshore from Bataan, found items to send over for the baby. Batana was the hospital's queen. She brought a sense of normalcy, a reassurance that someday the war would end. Someday, life would be sane again. And she helped Nurse Hatchet, the patients, and the entire hospital continue through the hell and carnage that surrounded them both inside the hospital and out on the Bataan front lines. This is Left Behind. Welcome to Left Behind, a podcast about the people left behind when the U.S. surrendered the Philippines in the early days of World War II. I'm Anastasia Harmon, and I tell you the stories of World War II servicemen and women, civilians, guerrillas, and others captured by the Japanese forces in the Philippines. My great-grandfather, Alma Sam, was one of the POWs, and his memoir inspired me to tell stories of his fellow captives. In this episode, we're going inside the field hospitals during the Battle of Bataan and spending time with the battlefield nurses, or, as the servicemen nicknamed them, the Bells of Bataan. 
There were 88 army nurses on Bataan Peninsula during the war, but all were able to escape to Corregidor Island before Bataan fell. Most of them would become POWs once the U.S. surrendered the Philippines. A few nurses, however, escaped Corregidor before the Japanese completely overran the Philippine Islands. Among them was Lieutenant Eunice Hatchett, a nurse from Texas. She was able to escape the Philippines to Australia and then return home. But World War II wasn't over for her. In 1944, she found herself on a Belgium battlefield. So, today's episode takes us, for the first time, to World War II's European theater. Oh, and Lieutenant Hatchett also made a small detour to Hollywood in between battlefield assignments. And she was the heroine of her very own global wartime romance. Eunice Hatchett's story is fantastic, so let's jump in. Eunice Cade Hatchett was born in Prairie Lee, Texas on May 17, 1911, the youngest of Wallace and Nettie Hatchett's three children. Her father was a farmer in Prairie Lee, which is an unincorporated area of Caldwell County, about 60 miles or 96 kilometers northeast of San Antonio. In 1929, or 30, Eunice graduated from nursing school and started working as a nurse at Houston's General Memorial Hospital. She eventually moved to San Antonio, where she entered the Army Nursing Corps in July 1936 and achieved the rank of second lieutenant by April 1939. In 1940, the tall and athletic 29-year-old with a soft Texas accent was transferred overseas to Fort Stotzenberg, about 60 miles or 96 kilometers north of Manila in the Philippines. She later told a reporter, I left the United States in 1940 to go to Manila I was excited because it was the first time I had been overseas. Like many of the Philippine nurses, Eunice may have joined the army for a change of pace and to get out of small towns, and maybe to find a little excitement. And excitement was definitely around the corner for her. While stationed in the Philippines, she met a young Air Corps officer named Charles Tyler. Charles, who was almost three years younger than Eunice, was born in Manila while his father was stationed there with a 13th Infantry Band. However, Charles grew up in Lawton, Oklahoma. He graduated from West Point in 1938 and then joined the U.S. Army Air Corps. Living in the beautiful tropical Manila in those pre-World War II days must have set the right tone for nurse Eunice Hatchett and Major Charles Tyler to fall in love. They became engaged and planned to marry in December 1941. But military orders and then a pesky war got in the way of those wedding plans. Charles Tyler was ordered home from the Philippines in October 1941. And then, of course, Japan attacked in December 1941, starting America's engagement in World War II. Charles Tyler was sent to Europe, and Eunice soon followed the withdrawing U.S. forces to the Bataan Peninsula. During her early days in Manila, Lieutenant Hatchett became close friends with a number of Army nurses, who fondly called her Hatch. Among them was nurse Lieutenant Juanita Redmond, a hard-working Southern girl who one source described as, quote, beautiful enough to be a movie star, close quote. Early on the morning of December 8, 1941, Hatch called Juanita, who had been off duty that night, and told her that the war had started. Nurse Redmond thought Hatch was joking, but she wasn't. Mere hours later, both nurses were caring for servicemen wounded when the Japanese attacked Clark Field, 
which was right next to the Fort Stotzenberg Hospital. Several of those men were likely brought there by Chaplain Ralph Brown, whose story I highlighted in episode three of this podcast. It was Hatch's first experience with battlefield nursing, and it wouldn't be her last. Within weeks, the nurses were ordered, along with the rest of American and Filipino forces, to withdraw to Bataan. Lieutenant Juanita Redmond was among the advanced group of nurses sent to establish a hospital there. The first field hospital number one was established in existing barracks near a town called Lamay on Bataan's eastern coast, directly across Manila Bay from Manila the city. Lieutenant Redmond was ordered to establish the surgery unit in an old bar. Beer and cigarettes cover the floors. She had to turn a bar top that was stained with animal blood from butchering and covered with flies into a surgery table. While Redmond was establishing hospital number one, Hatch was preparing patients for evacuation. Patients from the military hospitals in and around Manila had to be moved to Bataan with the rest of the U.S. forces. Otherwise, they would be captured, and who knows what else, by Japanese forces. Hatch later recalled her own evacuation to Bataan to AP reporter Francis Long, who, as you may remember from episode 10, was herself a civilian POW in the Philippines. Hatch said, when war broke out, I was stationed at Sternberg Hospital in the city of Manila. But as everyone knows now, it wasn't long before we were retreating to Bataan. The nurses left by a small river steamer. It was under bombardment every moment. But I will always remember the picture of the soldiers who had come by land, straggling into the base of Bataan. There was one small trail, and they had to march single file their backs piled high with everything they could hold. They looked dirty, tired, and hungry. I thought that was a terrible sight, but when the Japs started bombing and strafing us, her voice trailed off at that point. Note here, reporter Francis Long wrote that Hatch was stationed at Sternberg Hospital inside the city of Manila when the war broke out. Lieutenant Juanita Redmond would later write that Hatch was stationed with her at Fort Stotzenberg Hospital, 60 miles north of Manila, when the war started. I'm not sure which is correct, although I tend to lean toward Juanita Redmond's account since she was there with Hatch. I wonder if Frances Long, who would have been most familiar with Sternberg Hospital in Manila, perhaps confused the two hospitals. Hospital number one near LeMay was close to the action, perhaps even a little too close. Lieutenant Redmond recalled, at night, from our screen porch at nurses' quarters, we could see flashes of gunfire, like heat lightning in the sky, and hear the tanks grinding by, and the rumbling of trucks, and the tramp of marching boots not many yards away. Too frequently, shells fell close to our flimsy wooden barracks with their thatched roofs, keeping us nervously strained with worry about the helpless men who were our responsibility. Within weeks, however, the medical director decided to evacuate that hospital since it was so close to the battlegrounds. And it was a good thing too, because just a few days later, their former hospital barracks were burned to the ground after a bombing raid. The nurses and doctors were moved to an area in the jungle of Mount Bataan's foothills. They called the new location Little Baguio because the climate reminded them of Baguio, a city where the nurses used to go before the war to get away from Manila's heat. 
the new hospital location had a smattering of abandoned barracks and garages and carabao stalls. Carabao are a domestic breed of water buffalo common in the Philippines, so that's a fun hospital addition. Two long sheds with open sides and no floors became their hospital wards. The patients had to be transported to the new location as well. It took two days and two nights. The medical personnel removed seats from buses so that the patients' litters could be carried and laid down on the bus floor. The men in most serious condition got morphine for the bumpy ride over the rough jungle trail to the new hospital. And very soon new patients were arriving from the Bataan front lines. They came mainly at night because, during the day, Japanese aircraft focused on bombing trucks, cars, and ambulances. Yes, even those marked with red crosses. The arriving wounded men were also sick and hungry. Please, ma'am, couldn't I have something to eat? A new patient asked Hatch. She replied, can't you wait till breakfast? It won't be long. I'm so hungry. I haven't had anything to eat for days. For days? Wasn't there any food in your unit? We were cut off. They couldn't get food to us. Such conversations only became worse, as even the battlefield locations that were not cut off, and the hospital itself, began running out of food. Hospital number one staff had to consistently add new wards, even when they ran out of buildings. They'd originally set up beds for 500 patients, but at its height, hospital number one was caring for 1,600 patients. Workers built bamboo beds and stacked them double and sometimes triple high. They cleared space under trees and jungle foliage to accommodate more beds. And when the beds ran out, they placed mattresses on the ground. Dust blew through the open air and outdoor wards, and the nurses had to continually brush dirt and grime off their patients, the beds, and other hospital equipment. The hospital staff draped burlap on the ward's outer edges, which cut down on the blowing dust a little. Because many patients had dysentery, which causes extreme diarrhea, the latrines couldn't be placed too far from the wards. The workers had dug straddle latrines. Those are long, narrow trenches that people would basically squat over while they... And because there was little to no lime or other chemicals to counteract the human waste, the smell permeated the hospital and attracted swarms of flies. Somehow, despite all the difficulties, the nurses made the hospital work. There was a surgery ward, thankfully that was indoors, an orthopedic ward, a laboratory, x-ray equipment, and a pharmacy. Nurses worked to keep the operating rooms, equipment, and dressings sterile and the instruments in good working order. Hatch and the nurses worked in army mechanic coveralls. Monkey suits, Hatch had called them. They were ugly, beige, and too big for the women, but they were practical and provided the needed camouflage. The nurses attempted to keep up the spirits of the wounded and often downtrodden men. Patients would talk about their girls back home and their plans for after the war. This talk cheered some of the boys. Others, especially those with amputations, wondered if their girls back home would still want them. When the hospital ran out of medicines, which became all too common as the months on baton dragged on, doctors came up with innovative ways to fight disease and infection. For example, one doctor improvised a way to handle gangrene once the meds were gone. They would cut the wound open to the bone, removing infected tissue. After swabbing the area with peroxide, the doctor left the open wound uncovered, 
except for mosquito netting, and exposed to sun rays and air, which destroyed the gangrene bacteria. Still, the gangrene ward was a difficult place, with gangrene's putrid odor, the exposed wounds, and agonized pleadings of wounded men begging for someone to Take it off! Please take it off! Eventually, they moved the gangrene ward to a new location, with only trees for its roof. They made the move at night in torrential rain, moving the patients in their beds. Hatch, Lieutenant Redmond, and other nurses held flashlights along the trail as medical personnel carried patient beds through the jungle, even across a ravine. Suddenly, a patient bolted up in his bed. What in the hell is going on? He shouted, then sprang out of bed and started running away. Nurse Redmond, anxiety in her voice, called out, Don't run! Don't run! Wait, we'll take you in! Amid the disease, hard work, and destruction, there were a few chances for fun. Hatch and the other nurses were sometimes invited to dinner on the USS Canopus, a U.S. Navy ship anchored in Maravellas Bay on Bataan's southern tip, and pretending to be an abandoned, half-sunk ship. But below deck, machine shops were hard at work, as was evening entertainment. On those rare occasions, the nurses were treated to dinner and a show. The Canopus men even fashioned a small rowboat that sailors could row around the small Maravellas Bay, taking the nurses on little cruises. The girls would also sometimes visit their friends at the much more primitive Field Hospital No. 2. This hospital had no buildings at all, no enclosed wards. It was completely exposed to the air, with only the trees for cover. Back at Hospital No. 1, Army chaplains and workmen fashioned outdoor chapels for worship. They laid planks across sawhorses for pews, and patients were able to attend religious services. And there was even a baby born at the hospital, which was a treat for everyone. Dysentery, beriberi, and other diseases of malnutrition increased as the months went on and food began to run perilously low. Servicemen began showing up in alarming numbers with severe diarrhea. One of them explained, I think it's because of the water. We were cut off from our base, our canteens were empty, and we were dying of thirst. We saw this carabao stream. It was awfully dirty, but we just had to drink. You get so thirsty, you don't care what you gulp down your throat, as long as it's wet. Remember, carabao are water buffalo, so they spend lots of time in streams and ditches. And the thirsty men drank it. Scenes like this became commonplace on the Bataan Death March. Hatch and her sister nurses heard stories of the boys, as they fondly referred to their patients because so many were so young, eating snakes, lizards, and even pythons. As food rations ran low at hospital number one, the nurses had to ration patient meals to twice per day, knowing that if help didn't reach them soon, they'd likely have to cut the meals further. Everyone was hungry and tightening their belts as a result. Even before the war had started and the U.S. was gearing up for possible Japanese hostilities on the island, military officials knew that food, medicine, and other supplies would last only six months. Turns out, that estimate was very high. Their supplies barely lasted three months, and that was after cutting rations in half twice. The biggest threat to the United States continuing to hold Bataan was food and medicine and ammunition. Still though, for a while, they all hoped that help would come. The big American Navy fleet would arrive. Supplies would get to them, Bataan wouldn't fall. But 
As we know, that help never arrived, and Bataan did fall. Shortly before U.S. and Filipino forces surrendered Bataan to the Japanese, the nurses were ordered to evacuate to the island fortress Corregidor. Hatch and the other nurses resisted the order, wanting to stay and face the Japanese with their patients and the doctors, medics, and other men they served with. But in the end, all nurses were evacuated on the evening of April 8, 1942, mere hours before Bataan fell. Hatch recalled, we were still caring for the wounded and did not get away from Bataan until 10 o'clock. It's a miracle to me how we missed the Japs. The retreat from Bataan was horrible. Rowboats, small steamers, anything were scurrying back and forth, taking the retreating soldiers to Corregidor. Although we had huge Red Cross signs on the ships carrying the wounded, the Japs strafed and bombed indiscriminately. It was a mess. Some frantic people even tried swimming across, but, but they didn't get far. Hatch's new home was the Naval Hospital inside the massive tunnels that were built into Corregidor's Melinda Hill. And like the field hospitals she just left, this new hospital didn't have enough beds for all the sick and wounded men who needed care. Hatch remembered, there was just no room to take care of them. We had two meals a day consisting of rice, tea, and carabao meat, which was slowly undermining our health. Sanitary conditions were terrible. Our medical supply was running low and our ammunition too. There was about one cigarette per person per week. We couldn't let ourselves get depressed because we had to keep the wounded soldiers' spirits high. They were such a bunch of wonderful kids. All we seemed to talk about was the day when we would be free from the Japs and have food. Whenever I had time to catch a wind, I dreamed of huge steaks melting in my mouth. Corregidor was under siege the entire time Hatch was stationed there, which was only three weeks, but she recalled, they seemed like years. On April 29, 1942, 22 nurses, including Lieutenant Eunice Hatchett, and Lieutenant Juanita Redman were informed that they were being evacuated from Corregidor. They had two and a half hours notice and could take one bag with them. The nurses hurried to the Corregidor docks under cover of midnight's darkness where two PBY planes were waiting. The consolidated PBY Catalina, the plane's official name, is a flying boat or amphibious aircraft, so a seaplane. It was used for ocean battle and was especially useful for air attacks of submarines. Built in the 1930s and 40s, some of these planes are still in use today as water bombers to fight fires. Eleven nurses boarded each plane, along with some high-ranking military men. Let's get going! Hurry up! Hurry up! The pilots kept telling the passengers. When the planes were in the air, Juanita Redman looked out the window and saw puffs of smoke and little balls of fire. What are they? She asked a man nearby. He replied dryly, Well, it could be anti-aircraft fire, sister. Oh, of course, she responded. Hatch, Redmond, and the other nurses huddled their overly thin, anemic bodies under coats in the cold, high-altitude air. It was possibly the first time they needed extra warmth since arriving in the hot, humid Philippines at least a year before. The planes arrived at the Philippine island of Mindanao the next morning, where they landed for refueling before continuing to Australia. The nurses ate breakfast at a nearby army encampment, then returned to their planes. 
Hatch and her plane's nurses wave goodbye to the 11 nurses boarding the second plane. So long, a nurse friend called to them. See you tomorrow. But she was wrong. The weight in Hatch's plane was too heavy. It couldn't get in the air. So the passengers threw out many of their meager possessions and tried to take off again. Still, the plane wouldn't rise. They sat, holding their breath, as the pilot tried again. Miraculously, the plane rose. Then, an hour later, they found out the reason the plane was so heavy. A young sailor, I'm assuming at Mindanao, had stowed away in the plane's tail. The rest of the flight to Darwin, Australia was uneventful and smooth. Arriving in Darwin, Hatch and her friends looked for the first plane's nurses. They couldn't find them. The first plane hadn't arrived. It did so an hour later, however, but none of the nurses or servicemen were on board. During takeoff that morning, the plane had struck a submerged rock and had to stop for repairs. But when the plane was ready to depart again, the passengers were nowhere to be found, so the plane had to continue without them. Hatch had no idea what happened to her friends, now stranded on yet another Philippine island, and we will explore their adventure in a future episode. From Darwin, Hatch and the other 10 nurses were sent to Melbourne, where they got real showers, shampooed their hair, and got clothing. They had escaped Corregidor with only their army coveralls. You look almost human again, Hatch told a fellow nurse. They set sail for home soon thereafter. Hatch, Redmond, and the other nine escaped nurses arrived in San Francisco on June 11, 1942. The returning nurses were American heroes, I mean heroines, and received a lot of media coverage in newsreels and newspapers across the country. Hatch returned home to Texas to rest and recuperate and await reassignment. I want to forget the tragedies and the horrors of Bataan, she told a reporter. Once home, she was astonished by the seemingly apathetic attitude people had about the war. Too many people don't seem to realize the war is on, she explained to the press. In late July 1942, about a month after returning home, Hatch made her first post-Baton public appearance at a war rally near her hometown in Lockhart, Texas. She hoped her appearance at the rally would raise awareness about the war and told a newspaper, I shall tell them of what Baton was like of Manila before and after the senseless attack on the declared open city, of how hungry, dying, struggling defenders fought on and on and on, hoping against hope for help that never came, how they subsisted on the meat of horses, mules, and water buffalo, and how finally a dearth of quinine and the hopelessness of treating the sick and the wounded without the drug became as menacing as the murderous fire of the Japs. Texas Governor Coke Stevenson and Congressman Lyndon B. Johnson were the rally's guests of honor. LBJ, of course, would become U.S. President when Kennedy died. After several months of recuperation, the Assistant Superintendent of the Army Nurse Corps called Hatch with an assignment. I believe this was in late 1942. The War Department had given Paramount Studios permission to make a movie about the nurses on Bataan and needed a nurse as a technical consultant. Hatchet, who believed they were making a documentary, accepted. Explained Elizabeth Norman, who is the author of the book We Band of Angels, which details the wartime experiences of nurses on Bataan. 
Lieutenant Hatchet was excited about the opportunity, later saying, I thought it would be the experience of a lifetime that I could help. I had everything about the Philippines still fresh in my mind. She left Texas and moved into an apartment hotel in Los Angeles, all ready for her new Hollywood orders. The movie was called So Proudly We Hail, and Hatchet first worked with the movie's director, using nurses' diaries to create the movie's dialogue. Hatchet was impressed. Some of the characters resembled nurses she'd known. She also liked the sets and costumes looked like Field Hospital No. 1. The sets were created based on pictures of the actual field hospital where Lieutenant Hatchet had served. The producers of the movie originally wanted it to be a romance set against the backdrop of the war, but the War Department, which monitored all films about the war, said that it should, according to author Elizabeth Norman, portray a realistic depiction of the war in the Pacific, toned down to be sure so as not to frighten or demoralize the public. Still, the movie contained quite a bit of romance, and that's part of what started to frustrate Lieutenant Hatchet. She called the Army Nursing Corps Assistant Superintendent. Colonel Blanchfield, I want to be reassigned. This movie is not like our experience on Bataan. They are doing things wrong. Like having a nurse commit suicide in an attempt to kill Japanese soldiers? Nothing like that would have ever happened. We treated our Japanese patients just like we treated any other. And having romantic scenes in foxholes, and one of the senior nurses begs her superior to evacuate the nurses from the town, we fought to stay with our patients. We didn't want to leave. Don't be so thin-skinned, Lieutenant. They're allowed creative license. If the movie boosts people's morale and army recruitment, that's a good thing. Ma'am, I believe the portrayals will disaffect recruits. Lieutenant Hatchet, you're under orders. You will remain as advisor until they no longer need you. Do you understand? Hatchet, of course, followed orders and was even involved in the movie's pre-release media, telling one reporter that the bulk of the film was authentic to the experience on Bataan, though, quote, not as bad as the real thing, close quote. So Proudly We Hail opened in June 1943 to rave reviews and large audiences. The movie's trailer called it, quote, the most stirring drama ever lived by American women, close quote. These are American women. They could be your neighbor's daughters. Yet in the desperate hour of our country's need, they rose to magnificent heights of courage no woman and few men have ever reached before. From their heroic deeds, their boundless love, their women's hearts, comes this true story of intense dramatic power. So proudly we hail, starring Claudette Colbert, who found her love in battle and spent her honeymoon in a foxhole. Everything that happens, everything I do, you're part of it. I can't get you out of my mind. Don't try. Paulette Goddard, who wore her black lace nightgown as an evening dress to keep up her morale. And the morale of Kansas, the fighting Marine with plenty of smooch. Played by Sonny Tufts, Veronica Lake, You'd never think a girl so beautiful could be so cold a killer. I know what I'm doing. I know why I'm here. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to kill Jeffs. Every blood-stained one I can get my hands on. What are we going to do? We'll get out of this somehow. I know what I'm going to do. If somebody doesn't come, we'd better all kill ourselves. I was in Nanking. I saw what happened to the women there. Be quiet. When the 
Red Cross protested the Japanese called it the privilege of serving His Imperial Majesty's troops. It's an honor, an honor you die from. It was nominated for four Academy Awards, including Best Supporting Actress, and today has a 7.5 rating on IMDb. But by large, the Bataan nurses who returned home with Hatchet were embarrassed by the film, feeling it minimized their experience and sacrifice. Some even blamed Hatchet for the inaccuracies. On my website, I've linked to the IMDb page for So Proudly We Hell, where you can view the movie's trailer. Well, with the Hollywood station behind her, Lieutenant Hatchet was again awaiting new orders. In a September 1943 interview with AP correspondent Frances Long, Hatchet explained that she wanted to get back to combat again, and especially expressed a desire to be stationed in England. And I'm pretty sure I know the reason why she was so keen on England. A certain Air Corps major named Charles Tyler. You'll recall that the two met in the Philippines and became engaged and that he left the Philippines in fall 1941 before the war started. Then, on May 11, 1942, while Hatchet was making her escape from the Philippines, Major Tyler was sent to England, where he remained stationed for the next two years. An April 1944 newspaper article explained that, It was in the Philippines near Manila that Charles first met his fiancée, Lieutenant Eunice Hatchet, an army nurse, and began what has been publicized as a global romance. Although they had planned to be married in late December 1941, the war intervened, and they have not seen each other since October of that year. So, when Hatchet expressed the desire to be stationed in England, I'm fairly certain she had the dashing young major in mind, and her wish would be granted. At some point in the last half of 1943, or early 1944, Lieutenant Hatchet was assigned to the 53rd Field Hospital at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. The unit was in training for combat, and on April 19, 1944, so just weeks before D-Day, Hatchet and the 53rd Field Hospital set sail for England. They landed in Scotland and took trains to southern England, where they were stationed at the 52nd General Hospital. Now in England, Eunice was reunited with Charles Tyler. The joyful couple married in England in July 1944. Soon thereafter, on July 15, 1944, Hatchet and the 53rd Field Hospital landed at Normandy, France, just six weeks after the D-Day invasion there. In October 1944, after spending a couple months in France, Nurse Hatchet and the 53rd Field Hospital followed General George Patton's 3rd Army into Belgium, Holland, and finally into Germany. I believe the 53rd Field Hospital, where the doctors, nurses, and other medical care for the Market Garden and Battle of the Bulge campaigns. If you're familiar with the Band of Brothers miniseries, these are the post-D-Day operations that Easy Company was involved in. And if you haven't seen Band of Brothers, I highly recommend it. It's so good. But this time on the battlefield, Hatchet served in wards, inside tents, or buildings, rather than the primitive circumstances on Bataan. The hospital's doctors were astonished by Hatchet's skill. Her time on Bataan made her the most experienced battlefield nurse in the unit, and perhaps the U.S. Army. This news report from December 1944, during the Battle of the Bulge, describes conditions near where Hatchet would have been stationed. Here's the NBC News from around the world. This is James Stevenson reporting from the NBC Newsroom in New York. 
Here are the late developments. Reports seeping through the news blackout on the Western Front indicate that furious fighting is in progress on the northern sector where the German counterattack has driven approximately 18 miles into Belgium. Allied planes are smashing at German armored columns. In early 1945, Hatchet learned that her baton nursing friends, who remained behind at Corregidor and then were captured and imprisoned by the Japanese, were liberated from POW camps after nearly three years in captivity. She recalled, When I saw that in the papers, I cried. Oh, how I cried. People came up to me and asked, What's going on? And I said, I've just had the most wonderful news. Not long after that, the Army Nursing Corps Assistant Chief sought out Hatchet on the European battlefields. Lieutenant Hatchet, after two and a half years in combat, don't you think you've had enough? Wouldn't you like to get started home? The Assistant Chief asked, to which Eunice replied, Yes, bless you. But going home doesn't seem to have been so immediate. In July 1945, her husband, now Colonel Charles Tyler, was stationed in Luxembourg, and Hatchet seems to have been sent to Paris for a while. Charles would remain in Europe until at least December 1945, where he was the chief of the Air Disarmament Division of the U.S. Air Corps. His unit was, according to a U.S. newspaper, responsible for the total and complete disarmament of the once vaunted Luftwaffe. The Luftwaffe, of course, being the Nazi Germany Air Force during World War II. Eunice Hatchett Tyler resigned from military duties in December 1945, having earned the rank of captain. Colonel Charles Tyler remained in the U.S. Air Force and served in Korea and Vietnam. He and Eunice had two children, one son and one daughter, during those military years. Charles retired from the U.S. Air Force in 1966. The couple had big plans for their retirement. However, Charles died of a heart attack just five years later in May 1971. He was 57 years old. He is buried in the Fort Sam Houston National Cemetery in San Antonio, Texas. Eunice Tyler spent the later years of her life in San Antonio. She never remarried. In 1998, she was an active 86-year-old who, according to a news article, was an avid golfer, an accomplished ballroom dancer, a longtime yoga student, and the first female usher at St. Paul's. Also, she could still fit into her army uniform. 91-year-old Eunice Cade Hatchett Tyler died January 15, 2003 in San Antonio. She is buried at Fort Sam Houston National Cemetery with her husband. She was survived by two children, four grandchildren, and three great-grandchildren. Lieutenant Hatchett's war experience was quite unique, from the jungles of Bataan to the battlefields of Europe, with a detour through Hollywood and a global romance. It truly is an awesome story. And back on Bataan, Hatchett's field hospital was filled with Filipino and American soldiers who were fighting Japanese forces on the front lines in northern Bataan. Amid the horror of those battles, many heroes emerged, including men who sacrificed themselves to defend their units. More on that next time, this is Left Behind. Thanks for listening. You can find pictures, maps, and sources about Lieutenant Eunice Hatchett's story on my website. The link is in the show description. If you'd like to know more about nurses on Bataan, I suggest the book We Band of Angels by Elizabeth Norman. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with a friend. 
Spreading the word about this podcast lets me continue sharing these amazing stories. Left Behind is research written and produced by me, Anastasia Harmon. Dramatizations are based on historical research, although some creative liberty is taken. And I'll be back next week with a Medal of Honor winner who jumped alone but highly armed into a Japanese foxhole. (laughs) 